Section 45 of Man and Wife. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rosie. Man and Wife by Wilkie Collins. Ninth Scene, Chapter the Fortieth, Part One. The Music Room. Julius Delamayn was alone, idly sauntering to and fro, with his violin in his hand, on the terrace at Swanhaven Lodge. The first mellow light of evening was in the sky. It was the close of the day on which Anne Sylvester had left Perth. Some hours earlier Julius had sacrificed himself to the duties of his political position, as made for him by his father. He had submitted to the dire necessity of delivering an oration to the electors at a public meeting in the neighboring town of Kirkandrew a detestable atmosphere to breathe, a disorderly audience to address, insolent opposition to conciliate, imbecile inquiries to answer, brutish interruptions to endure, greedy petitioners to pacify, and dirty hands to shake. These are the stages by which the aspiring English gentleman is compelled to travel on the journey which leads him from the modest obscurity of private life to the glorious publicity of the House of Commons." Julius paid the preliminary penalties of a political first appearance as exacted by free institutions, with the necessary patience, and returned to the welcome shelter of home, more indifferent, if possible, to the attractions of parliamentary distinction than when he set out. The discord of the roaring people, still echoing in his ears, had sharpened his customary sensibility to the poetry of sound, as composed by Mozart, and as interpreted by piano and violin. Possessing himself of his beloved instrument, he had gone out on the terrace to cool himself in the evening air, pending the arrival of the servant whom he had summoned by the music-room bell. The man appeared at the glass door which led into the room, and reported, in answer to his master's inquiry, that Mrs. Julius Delamayn was out paying visits, and was not expected to return for another hour at least. Julius groaned in spirit. The finest music which Mozart has written for the violin associates that instrument with the piano. Without the wife to help him, the husband was mute. After an instant's consideration, Julius hit on an idea which promised, in some degree, to remedy the disaster of Miss Delamayn's absence from home. "'Has Miss Glenarm gone out, too?' he asked. "'No, sir.' "'My compliments. If Miss Glenarm has nothing else to do, will she be so kind as to come to me in the music-room?' The servant went away with his message. Julius seated himself on one of the terrace benches and began to tune his violin. Mrs. Glenarm, rightly reported by Bishopriggs as having privately taken refuge from her anonymous correspondent at Swanhaven Lodge, was, musically speaking, far from being an efficient substitute for Mrs. Delamayn. Julius possessed in his wife one of the few players on the pianoforte under whose subtle touch that shallow and soulless instrument becomes inspired with expression not its own, and produces music instead of noise. The fine organization which can work this miracle had not been bestowed on Mrs. Glenarm. She had been carefully taught, and she was to be trusted to play correctly, and that was all. Julius, hungry for music, and reigned to circumstances, asked for no more. The servant returned with his answer. Mrs. Glenarm would join Mr. Delamayn in the music-room in ten minutes' time. Julius rose, relieved, and resumed his sauntering walk, now playing little snatches of music, now stopping to look at the flowers on the terrace, with an eye that enjoyed their beauty, and a hand that fondled them with caressing touch. If Imperial Parliament had seen him at that moment, 
imperial parliament must have given notice of a question to his illustrious father is it possible my lord that you can have begotten such a member as this after stopping for a moment to tighten one of the strings of his violin julius raising his head from the instrument was surprised to see a lady approaching him on the terrace advancing to meet her and perceiving that she was a total stranger to him he assumed that she was in all probability a visitor to his wife have i the honour of speaking to a friend of mrs delamayn's he asked my wife is not at home i am sorry to say i am a stranger to mrs delamayn the lady answered the servant informed me that she had gone out and that i should find mr delamayn here julius bowed and waited to hear more i must beg you to forgive my intrusion the stranger went on my object is to ask permission to see a lady who is i have been informed a guest in your house the extraordinary formality of the request rather puzzled julius do you mean mrs glenarm he asked yes pray don't think any permission necessary a friend of mrs glenarm's may take her welcome for granted in this house i am not a friend of mrs glenarm i am a total stranger to her this made the ceremonious request preferred by the lady a little more intelligible but it left the lady's object in wishing to speak to mrs glenarm still in the dark julius politely waited until it pleased her to proceed further and explain herself the explanation did not appear to be an easy one to give. Her eyes dropped to the ground. She hesitated painfully. "'My name, if I mention it,' she resumed, without looking up, "'may possibly inform you—' She paused. Her color came and went. She hesitated again, struggling with her agitation, and controlled it. "'I am Anne Sylvester,' she said suddenly raising her pale face and suddenly steadying her trembling voice julius started and looked at her in silent surprise the name was doubly known to him not long since he had heard it from his father's lips at his father's bedside lord holchester had charged him had earnestly charged him to bear that name in mind and to help the woman who bore it if the woman ever applied to him in time to come again he had heard the name more lately associated scandalously with the name of his brother on the receipt of the first of the anonymous letters sent to her mrs glenarm had not only summoned geoffrey himself to refute the aspersion cast upon him but had forwarded a private copy of the letter to his relatives at swanhaven geoffrey's defence had not entirely satisfied julius that his brother was free from blame as he now looked at Anne Sylvester, the doubt returned upon him strengthened, almost confirmed. Was this woman, so modest, so gentle, so simply and unaffectedly refined, the shameless adventuress denounced by Geoffrey, as claiming him on the strength of a foolish flirtation, knowing herself at the time to be privately married to another man? Was this woman, with the voice of a lady, the look of a lady, the manner of a lady, in league as geoffrey had declared with the illiterate vagabond who was attempting to extort money anonymously from mrs glenarm impossible making every allowance for the proverbial deceitfulness of appearances impossible your name has been mentioned to me said julius answering her after a momentary pause his instincts as a gentleman made him shrink from referring to the association of her name with the name of his brother my father mentioned you he added considerately explaining his knowledge of her in that way when i last saw him in london 
"'Your father?' She came a step nearer, with a look of distrust as well as a look of astonishment in her face. "'Your father is Lord Holchester, is he not?' "'Yes.' "'What made him speak of me?' "'He was ill at the time,' Julius answered, "'and he had been thinking of events in his past life with which I am entirely unacquainted. "'He said he had known your father and mother.' He desired me, if you were ever in want of any assistance, to place my services at your disposal. When he expressed that wish, he spoke very earnestly. He gave me the impression that there was a feeling of regret associated with the recollections on which he had been dwelling. Slowly, and in silence, Anne drew back to the low wall of the terrace close by. She rested one hand on it to support herself. Julius had said words of terrible import, without a suspicion of what he had done. Never until now had Anne Sylvester known that the man who had betrayed her was the son of that other man whose discovery of the flaw in the marriage had ended in the betrayal of her mother before her. She felt the shock of the revelation with a chill of superstitious dread. Was the chain of a fatality wound invisibly round her? Turn which way she might, was she still going darkly on, in the track of her dead mother, to an appointed and hereditary doom? Present things passed from her view as the awful doubt cast its shadow over her mind. She lived again for a moment in the time when she was a child. She saw the face of her mother once more, with the wan despair of it of the bygone days when the title of wife was denied her, and the social prospect was closed forever. Julius approached and roused her. "'Can I get you anything?' he asked. "'You are looking very ill. "'I hope I have said nothing to distress you.' "'The question failed to attract her attention. "'She put a question herself instead of answering it. "'Did you say you were quite ignorant "'of what your father was thinking of "'when he spoke to you about me?' "'Quite ignorant. "'Is your brother likely to know more about it than you do?' "'Certainly not.' "'She paused, absorbed once more in her own thoughts.' Startled, on the memorable day when they had first met, by Geoffrey's family name, she had put the question to him whether there had not been some acquaintance between their parents in the past time. Deceiving her in all else, he had not deceived in this. He had spoken in good faith when he had declared that he had never heard her father or her mother mentioned at home. The curiosity of Julius was aroused. He attempted to lead her on into saying more. "'You appear to know what my father was thinking of when he spoke to me,' he resumed. "'May I ask—' She interrupted him with a gesture of entreaty. "'Pray don't ask. It's past and over. It can have no interest for you. It has nothing to do with my errand here. I must return,' she went on hurriedly, "'to my object in trespassing on your kindness. Have you heard me mentioned, Mr. Delamain, by another member of your family besides your father?' Julius had not anticipated that she would approach, of her own accord, the painful subject on which he had himself forborne to touch. He was a little disappointed. He had expected more delicacy of feeling from her than she had shown. "'Is it necessary,' he asked coldly, "'to enter on that?' The blood rose again in Anne's cheeks. "'If it had not been necessary,' she answered, "'do you think I could have forced myself to mention it to you?' "'Let me remind you that I am here on sufferance. "'If I don't speak plainly, no matter at what sacrifice to my own feelings, "'I make my situation more embarrassing than it is already. "'I have something to tell Mrs. Glenarm relating to the anonymous letters "'which she has lately received. "'And I have a word to say to her, next, 
about her contemplated marriage. Before you allow me to do this, you ought to know who I am. I have owned it. You ought to have heard the worst that can be said of my conduct. Your face tells me you have heard the worst. After the forbearance you have shown to me, as a perfect stranger, I will not commit the meanness of taking you by surprise. Perhaps, Mr. Delamayn, you understand, now, why I felt myself obliged to refer to your brother. Will you trust me with permission to speak to Mrs. Glenarm? It was simply and modestly said, with an unaffected and touching resignation of look and manner. Julius gave her back the respect and the sympathy which, for a moment, he had unjustly withheld from her. "'You have placed a confidence in me,' he said, "'which most persons in your situation would have withheld. "'I feel bound, in return, to place confidence in you. "'I will take it for granted that your motive in this matter "'is one which it is my duty to respect. "'It will be for Mrs. Glenarm to say "'whether she wishes the interview to take place or not. "'All that I can do is to leave you free to propose it to her. "'You are free.' As he spoke, the sound of the piano reached them from the music-room. Julius pointed to the glass door which opened onto the terrace. "'You have only to go in by that door,' he said, "'and you will find Mrs. Glenarm alone.' Anne bowed and left him. Arrived at the short flight of steps which led up to the door, she paused to collect her thoughts before she went in. A sudden reluctance to go on and enter the room took possession of her as she waited with her foot on the lower step. The report of Mrs. Glenarm's contemplated marriage had produced no such effect on her as Sir Patrick had supposed. It had found no love for Geoffrey left to wound, no latent jealousy only waiting to be inflamed. Her object in taking the journey to Perth was completed when her correspondence with Geoffrey was in her own hands again. The change of purpose which had brought her to Swanhaven was due entirely to the new view of her position toward Mrs. Glenarm, which the coarse common sense of Bishopriggs had first suggested to her. If she failed to protest against Mrs. Glenarm's marriage, in the interests of the reparation which Geoffrey owed to her, her conduct would only confirm Geoffrey's audacious assertion that she was a married woman already. For her own sake, she might still have hesitated to move in the manor. But Blanche's interests were concerned as well as her own, and for Blanche's sake she had resolved on making the journey to Swanhaven Lodge. At the same time, feeling toward Geoffrey as she felt now, conscious as she was of not really desiring the reparation on which she was about to insist, it was essential to the preservation of her own self-respect that she should have some purpose in view which could justify her to her own conscience— in assuming the character of Mrs. Glenarm's rival. She had only to call to mind the critical situation of Blanche, and to see her purpose before her plainly. Assuming that she could open the coming interview, by peaceably proving that her claim on Geoffrey was beyond dispute, she might then, without fear of misconception, take the tone of a friend instead of an enemy, and might, with the best grace, assure Mrs. Glenarm that she had no rivalry to dread on the one easy condition that she engaged to make Geoffrey repair the evil that he had done. Marry him without a word against it to dread from me, so long as he unsays the words and undoes the deeds which have thrown a doubt on the marriage of Arnold and Blanche. If she could but bring the interview to this end, there was the way found of extricating Arnold by her own exertions from the false position in which she had innocently placed him toward his wife. 
such was the object before her as she now stood on the brink of her interview with mrs glenarm end of section forty five recording by rosie